Hello, everyone. Welcome to the AMT Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. I am Benjamin Mose, the Director of Technology, and I'm here with... Stephen Lamarca, AMT's Technology Analyst. Steve, how are you doing on this cold winter day? It's actually warm. It's getting warm. It is so much warmer than it's been. It's been cold. That's true. You know, I don't want to, den- I don't want to, you know, be a, a cold weather denier because <laughs> it has been extremely cold the past few days. Um, it was 24 I degrees when back. I got up this morning. <laughs> uh, Peter Eelman uh, swung by the desk yesterday while he was waiting to talk to Doug. Yep. And he was telling me about like the weather in um, Chicago. Chicago. Yep. And it's like, they're regularly used to like negative 15, <laughs> like or this time of year. I'm yeah. like, okay, okay. It's That's not that cold. <laughs> 20 is not that bad. I'm going to stop complaining. In comparison, it's not cold. But for yeah. me, an isolated Virginian, it's cold. Yeah. So I was at, uh, well, partly why it feels cold is because I was there in Orlando uh, two weeks ago for two <laughs> things. Uh, we had the Automation and Manufacturing Committee meeting uh, that was held at the A3 conference. Uh, so at the committee meeting, we actually talked about quite a few interesting things. So they talk about a balance of technology and business applications. Um, and where they are in the uh, in the marketplace is, you know, they're still seeing strong demand for mm-hmm. automation. Obviously, with uh, the past recent years of um, issues of human capital and being available and, you know, work shortages, I see a lot of demand of people right. shifting toward automation. And also, there's there's a lot of market growth, right? Oh, yeah. Through, across a d- bunch of different sectors. If you're not re- relying on uh, Semicon, <laughs> you have you can produce as much as you want and there's significant consumption for that. So they're seeing uh, growth in um, their automation, but they are running into supply chain issues. Obviously, everyone's aware of the semicon issues, but right. they're running into issues of just getting wire harnesses, getting connectors. That's crazy to me. It's not crazy. I mean, it makes sense. You yeah. know, if, if you're going to be short on one thing, why not be short for the rest of it? <laughs> but, but like, like I, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. Yeah. The, the prices of both new and used cars are through the roof. Right. And we all thought it was because of silicon. But yeah, I actually have heard that, that, you know, wiring harnesses are tough to get their hands on yeah. too. But some companies like are, are really like powering through it. Right. Like for example, um, you know, Toyota says they like planned on it, but their, their lots are still a little thin. Right. Not that I cruise for new cars that often, but, um, you know, amidst this silicon shortage, I bought a new motorcycle mm-hmm. and like all of the dealerships that I went to were all like, you're gonna have to wait. Like, like we have like test ride models. And if you buy one today, like you're going to get it in six months. Yeah. But, you know, that's OK, because, you know, that's when the weather's going to be nice. <laughs> um, but a few other dealerships like the only like like the Japanese motorcycle dealerships that I went to. Yeah. The only bikes on the lot were Kawasaki. Right. So like like and Kawasaki is not like exactly a big brand. I mean, I guess they are big in Japan. They're called the heavy industries. I don't sure. know what that means, but Japan loves using that in their titles, um, their company titles. But uh, uh, Kawasaki's like all over dealerships. Oh, like, interesting. It, it's like what is normally a motorcycle dealership for like multiple brands. Right. They're now like exclusively Kawasaki. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. So I don't know what they're doing differently. Maybe no one's buying them. <laughs> Whoa. some of the other things we talked about at the uh um committee meeting was the uh progression of vision technology yeah. we had a presentation on the very first applications of vision um and manufacturing and then the progression to what the current state of the art and that was a very interesting look of how far we've come in both packaging of vision systems and mm-hmm. the cost right so the first one was like a quarter million dollars just to see through a part and they had um, you know, disparate systems. So even getting like a digital image to someone remotely because they're using x-ray uh, to check the part. 
they basically had a camera in front of the x-ray monitor and then they fed that camera feed, you know, via CCTV to some other station somewhere else. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's connecting a bunch of analog systems where, you know, you can normally just take the feed right off the sensor and take that somewhere else. But now you're forced to use, um, you know, a series of analog systems. So it, it was a very good look at where we are today and where we have the potential to go in the future. I also thought, you know, I wasn't there at, at A3, mm-hmm. um, the A3 meeting, but um, I saw an article yesterday. Uh, quoting Jeff Bernstein yep. talking about how uh, robot sales in North America are up 28%. Yep. Uh, well, we're up 28% last year, 2021 over the previous year, 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and that caused me to look into the numbers a little bit more. And, you know, for a while now, I've been at least a few episodes in the podcast, I've mentioned how uh, South Korea is like an automation superpower. Right. You know, they have four times as many robots per 10,000 people that the U.S. have. Yep. Like the U.S. isn't even in the same league. Right. Compared to that. But then again, you look at like the other numbers like population. Right. We've got six times their population. <laughs> True. True. And in terms of robot orders Mm -hmm. like the number of robots purchased we're purchasing the same amount of robots Uh, as them annually that's fascinating and i think that data goes back to 2017 but it it is cool to look at it you know yeah and to mention the conference so i sat through a bunch of different sessions through the conference so it was the rest of the week uh so they had a automation outlook uh interesting thing on cybersecurity and industry which we've been getting into quite a bit yes amt's been writing a lot about um, automation revolution in digital manufacturing. So not only look at obviously physical automation, but the software side of it. And of course, an economic outlook. So in, to be honest, Steve, one of the best parts about the conference was just being in Orlando in the middle of winter. Right. <laughs> I was going to ask you what your favorite uh, winter conference was. Um, I don't know if I, so I don't really go to, I haven't really been to many conferences in the middle of the winter, but yep. like around the winter, like, sure. you know, late winter, early spring and, you know, late fall, early winter. Um, I can't say it's my favorite, but the most memorable yep. is probably Spacecom. Um, I you always get to like whenever I hear like there's been a lot of additive research, as you know, lately mm-hmm. and, you know, been so for like the past several years. Um, but like whenever you know, made in space comes up. I think back to Spacecom. Right. Or like when we watched the movie um um Stowaway. Sure. And they have a maker bot right there on camera <laughs> as if it wasn't product placement. Right. Like and you heard me rant about how they have an artificial gravity gravitational field on that space station. It's like, you know, 3D printing works best in zero G. But uh yeah, that makes me think of that. But also um one interesting thing, uh Space automation. Yeah. Yeah. Companion robots. Companion robots. Not what you're thinking. I'm not okay. talking about those. <laughs> okay. But like robots that, you know, astronauts, the small market, the small demographic <laughs> that is astronauts. Right. You know, they can't bring pets to space. True. And sure, they have other human interactions up there. Yeah. Like you've got colleagues that you have to sit with for like a year straight. <laughs> um, and you only have like two of them. And occasionally you get to call Houston or whatever. <laughs> but um you know, you don't get to uh, cozy up next to something warm and cuddly That's at fair. night. Yep. So there's a lot of like, th- there's just, well, not a lot, but there's a surprising amount of automation companies uh-huh. that just make these companion robots for astronauts. They'll make like, you know, uh, a, a robot seal okay. that 
is 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 like plushy, mm-hmm. but also you know moves and interacts uh, to your interactions with it, <laughs> and you know has like I guess uh, a, a heater. Okay. built into it so sure. they, it's warm to the touch too yep. and it's just it's cool that they there's a whole different world out there literally <laughs> that, that's fair that you know it is interesting when you consider the human element of space and mm-hmm. you know it's the world's longest working hours that you're up in space because you're working with colleagues like you said yeah. and you know they're, they're the one of the first people to you know consider remote work when they have to call in uh back home to houston and figure things out so yeah that that's fascinating but spacecom in general has been a very interesting experience to see, um, you know, the shift in made in space now, there's a lot of um, need and drive and interest to do a lot right. more manufacturing in space. And as, as, as cool as a lot of the companies that we get exposed to um, and our members are mm-hmm. um, at like IMTS, for example, um, you don't exactly get to, you know, rub elbows with uh, SpaceX or NASA sure. at IMTS. I mean, occasionally they do, but they're not like wearing like, badges there they're not wearing like flight suits there right. they're in like normal civilian garb or, yeah. or business garb and you can't tell who's who yeah but at spacecom they do kind of like advertise that a little bit and it's cool and i do like the shift in and coming uh, home with space uh, x swag space uh manufacturing so what i think spacex is launching like one little rocket a week or something along those lines yeah you know so if we look at all the equipment obviously it's spacex is using a lot more reusable rockets mm-hmm. but the manufacturing production needs for space has significantly grown. It right. Is, it, you know, if you've got so many different companies, you've got the European agencies, there's a lot more demand for manufacturing. For and space the drive equipment. for additive manufacturing to cut down on components yep. that go into rockets to make them more disposable. Yep. Because, it, you know, a rocket is essentially like a multi-million dollar, if not like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of for investment to something that is essentially disposable. <laughs> True. It's thrown away. Speaking of which, let's get into some articles. You've got a good one on Additive. So I've got a great one from Additive that, uh, well, it's not that great. It's it's (laughs) from Hackaday, which is more of like a consumer um, uh, news source. But uh, they reference, and of course I let my computer fall asleep on me. Um, They're they're talking about 3D printed radiation shields getting put to the test. And they reference a white paper Mm -hmm. on... The use of what are essentially consumer grade 3D printers um, that are printing with um, thermoplastics. Yep. Uh, specifically, they, they do a lot of they talk a lot in the white paper and in the article about PLA. Right. And there are a select few um, hobbyists or, you know, people that have, you know, small businesses mm-hmm. that require maybe it's agriculture or farming or you have a vineyard. Or, you know, what have you. Some people have their own weather systems, like right. their own outdoor weather systems. Instead of relying on, you know, a shady weatherman that's, you know, <laughs> going to tell you it's going to be sunny all day and it ends up raining. You know, they, they can make their own judgment specifically for their area because they have the tech for it. And there's the availability of things like Raspberry Pis that allow you to make your own, you know, weather radars effectively. Um. The problem with that stuff is those fragile PCBs and and single board computers, um, you don't necessarily want them to get wet if it does rain. You don't want them to be exposed to the elements. And even if they're not exposed to the elements, like even if you have perfect conditions, um, a lot of those those fragile computer chips are affected 
by the sun's radiation. Sure. So how effective is printing a simple shield with PLA? Mm-hmm. Good, fair question. And PLA does a decent job at protecting radiation. However, it does a terrible job at holding up against the elements. <laughs> and they, they, the, the, the paper talks about how PLA radiation shields degrade considerably after 30 days and effectively are totally destroyed wow. and, and scrapped or, or scrap material after 90 days. 90 days. That's fascinating. Um, and PLA is extremely accessible, sure. especially to a consumer with a 3D printer. Right. Um, but they also determined at the end of the article, they concluded that an ideal substitute, and this is all like information that the industry already knows. Right. right. Um, but they they conclude at the end that, uh, you know, an ideal replacement for PLA is ASA. Okay. Which is just it, it's chemically the same right. um, as ABS plastic, mm-hmm. but you doesn't require as high temperatures to gotcha. to use to right. print with. So you can extrude it. Easier. It's it's yeah. much easier to extrude. Cool. So um, and it's just that I I wanted to highlight this because it's a trend right now in terms of yep. additive manufacturing parts for radiation protective purposes. Sure. And I wanted to link this back to an earlier article from 3D Printing Industry. Um, UN, USNC, the ultra safe nuclear corporation <laughs> totally sounds trustworthy. I mean, they are, but like, man, it, out of, if this was a video game, that, con- that company would not be trustworthy <laughs> with a name like that. Um, UN, USNC licenses Ornal Oak Ridge national labs method to 3d print nuclear reactor components. And I touched on this a while ago, weeks yep. ago, and it was in the uh, tech report, but it's just, I, I just wanted to reference this quickly as there is a demand for 3D printing components for radiation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, radioactive exposed components. Extremely harsh environments. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, that is a fascinating look. So a lot of it depends on the application. Like in this the plastic, uh, the PLA situation, they're using as a shield and the nuclear condition or uh, example using a different application. I do like the, you know, problem statement and does it work? You know, I really like that Hackaday article. Yeah. And and not just like, you know, problem statement, testing, observations, (laughs) does it or does it not work? Yeah. And if it doesn't, they even have replacement solution. Yep. Yep. You know, I don't give Hackaday enough credit. (laughs) Uh, The article I have is about is from uh, Fast Company and they talk about um, industrial origami. So. For, for a long time, we've seen articles of additive getting into automotive. Um, you right. know, we've seen like some of the early, early examples of uh, wheels being printed. Uh, then they started shifting to calipers. And then um, uh, Singer started doing the entire body frame or components of, uh, of the body uh, being grown. Singer with a Z? With or a Z. C? C. C. Z. Yeah. Yep. Hypercar uh, cost right. territory, not quite production right i just want to make sure it wasn't like the resto mod company singer that does 911s <laughs> no no completely different singer um and then both cool we've seen applications in um bicycling and uh, motorcycles yeah now we have a startup company that's looking at uh creating uh, electric scooters by basically just forming material now you could say you could um use dyes and uh presses to obviously form any type of sheet metal that has been around for a long time but they're taking a much simpler approach where they're taking basically flat sheet and using brake presses to bend the sheet that you want. Basically, very, very simple um, forming along the same lines as origami. And some of the reasons that they're looking at doing this is for a couple of things. One is 
um, they've compared the components counts to uh, for a you know off the shelf scooter. They're around 130 components for a, a body um, for an older design. Well, with this new process or revised process, they're able to drop 70 percent of that. Now they're down to 15 components for the uh, scooter. So that's wild for a gas powered scooter. Correct. Correct. And so not only are you able to use um, less number of components, obviously you can bring in less material, right? You start off yeah. with a flat sheet and you're just bending and then for, uh, joining as you go. And that reminds me, I'm sorry, a quick sidebar. There's a lot of attention in eco-friendly, mm-hmm. um, environmentally friendly um, use of material. It's not yep. that the material is specifically environmentally friendly, like it's biodegradable, yep. but there's a lot of research showing that if the material is good enough and strong enough, you don't need to use as much. And that by default is environmentally friendly. Yeah, I'll get to that in a second. And so the course awesome. of the article is uh, we're creating a strength in the structure that actually makes it possible to have substantially less material and substantially less weight. So to your point, they're able to design it and form it and get the you know residual stresses in the place that they want where it's preloading and they don't have to worry about uh, adding more material. Uh, and not, the other benefit is instead of being manufactured in a big, uh, big factory where you need large space for, um, you know, forming presses, right. they're able to go to a smaller manufacturer footprint and produce much closer to the end, end customer and getting to your point of sustainability. Uh, so there's a third party that did a life cycle analysis. So a, a lot of people are very interested in electric cars because of the low impact once they purchase and use it. But there's quite a few studies that you look at the entire life cycle of harvesting batteries in yeah. the manufacturing process. The break-even point to the carbon footprint of a gas-powered car is about 100,000 miles. So if you're going to drive a car for 200,000 miles, you, you're you net positive. But realistically, you're going to turn a car over every you know 70 to 100,000 miles. You're going to be consistently at equal to the overall carbon footprint of a, of a gas-powered car in current manufacturing. Wow. So where they are now is that they feel that uh, in their manufacturing process, they are significantly more efficient than uh, producing that equipment, producing that good. And, you know, if you, right now they're producing electric scooters, but if they're switched to gas powered, they think that the gas powered will be significantly longer, um, uh, significantly less carbon footprint overall because of their uh, shorter manufacturing process. I don't know about you. That's music to my ears. <laughs> As an enthusiast, yeah, you know. Yeah. Obviously, we can't burn dino juice forever, but <laughs> and it, it's good and it sounds it sounds even better. If I was in the scooter market, I would jump on this. Yeah, very cool. You got an article on uh, additive machine visions and adaptive robots for additive. Yeah, so Metrology News uh, pulls through once again, and they have an article from February eighth yesterday. Um, additive manufacturing repair solution uses advanced uh, advanced machine vision and adaptive software. So this is basically a, a corporate financial announcement from Optimec. They're basically saying how they've just received um, or they, they they've just filled an order, uh, one one and a quarter million dollar order for their AM solution that implements um, adaptive software, mm-hmm. AI powered software, uh, for, and, uh, advanced machine vision to more effectively distribute additive material to repair worn components. And this is corporate level. Um, but I have a, from 3dprintingindustry.com, 
a supplemental article of this from a few weeks back, German-Canadian project set up to automate 3D printing part repair using AI technology. This is very similar. It doesn't have, you know, the buzzwords added to it of um, uh, advanced robot vision systems or uh, adaptive technology. At least it doesn't use the buzzwords, but it includes the same stuff. This is a collaboration between German and Canadian institutes and companies Mm -hmm. uh, working for the same goal. Cool. You know, they're not necessarily going for. They're just doing the research. They're not yep. trying to sell solutions at this point. Yep. Um, but uh, it's just it's a fascinating it's a fascinating uh, trend, and um, yeah, it's, it's it's really exciting because you know you, robots are not not even speaking about additive yet, but robots are used extreme uh, commonly in automotive production, um, especially for example, robots using to paint. Mm-hmm. Uh, the outer components of a car, like the body panels. Right. Um, and that's that, that employs a relatively dumb robot. It's an sure. industrial robot. No humans need to be around it, especially if it's programmed perfectly, which right. if it's doing mass production, which cars are, especially something like Ford is, um, then it's programmed to, to do its job perfectly. And then it's, you know, set it and forget it. Right. Um, the problem with that is, you know, it applies the paint and usually that's it, right. especially if it's an economy car. If it's, you know, a higher level, like, you know, luxury brand, it may apply a few layers of paint and then, you know, a clear coat right. um, to protect said paint. Um, but then it goes to the lot and it's done with it. However, if you're looking at like the super premium, like, you know, an English brand car like an Aston or a Rolls Royce. You know, those customers who are spending that crazy amount of money and don't care about dealer premiums because of a silicon shortage, um, you know, they want perfect paint and Mm -hmm. they're willing to at least they're willing to pay for it. They might not necessarily want it, but like they want they, they, they expect perfect paint. And to get that perfectly smooth, zero orange peel or swirl marks whatsoever, which you're not going to get swirl marks from the factory. But uh, without orange peel, you're definitely not going to get that from a robot spraying paint on alone um that needs to be buffed by hand sure and smoothed out by hand and then maybe a robot can apply a clear coating once it's been you know polished perfectly by hand yeah but um you know there's not robots implemented right now to do hand buffing mm-hmm. because the parts the components between vehicles and between parts differ right you know ma- advanced manufacturing techniques you know dictate that the parts might not differ that much but the work holding absolutely Mm. will sure and if you have a dumb robot like you know an industrial like generation one robot with a buffing wheel Mm -hmm. you're going to get hot spots and it's going to ruin that that body panel after another robot perfectly painted it (laughs) near perfectly painted it so it needs to be done by hand and adaptive robots will take care of this nice Um, and that's why the drive for these advanced uh, vision systems and AI controlled robots mm-hmm. so th- or adaptive robots can detect these small nuances, not even changes or, or blemishes or or um, uh, uh, just just these nuances between parts and right. the work holding to hold them in place differs enough that it requires an adaptive touch to it. That's what humans have by na- nature. But right. Which is Most why humans. it's called artificial intelligence. <laughs> well, a trained human, you know, right. can do this. Yeah. But 
this is basically it is very similar to that in that it's applying, you know, when you're repairing a damaged or worn mm-hmm. part, like, for example, a screw to a large ship or submarine. Right. Um, if if it's worn, it they may wear similarly, especially if it's a well-manufactured part. It yeah. may wear in a predicted and controlled manner. But if it's damaged, then you absolutely need additive and high tech vision systems to. So the machine knows when, okay, we need to apply a thicker layer here and a thinner layer here. And it needs to vary. So you don't have, you know, um, air pockets in, in the material being printed out. Yep. Yeah. Explore that uh, a bunch of years ago. So like in aerospace repair is a huge aftermarket industry. Yeah. You know, back to um, uh, sustainability. I'm a big fan of repairing more as opposed to just replacing. So you talk about big screws for boats and things like that, right? You could have a rotating inventory to keep your ship up and running. So you're going to replace it with a new one. But that old one, instead of just chucking it, you're just going to repair that and put that in your inventory pool. And uh, being able to streamline that repair process. So like weld repair has been around for a really long time, but that's been done by humans, right? right? Because they can see the variation from part to part, even in variation within the defect itself. Manual additive. Exactly. And they can compensate and either they'll excavate entirely and then they'll backfill it. Uh, but being able to shift to a more automated process uh, where you don't have to program every single time, right? So and that's the key is uh, getting to uh, cutting material or getting to welding the part soon as possible. So, yeah, I think that's a very good article. I'm glad to see, you know, we are doing significant more effort on re- streamlining the repair process. Sure. Uh, the last article I have is uh, automation related, uh, a new guide to automate existing machine tools. Oh, I love this one. And it's a good one to talk about, you know, you, at my old factory, we had equipment that was like 30 years old, and this was 20 years ago. So they're probably still around, probably 50 years old at this point where uh, physically everything works, right? They're, you know, um, machines that that just keep producing parts as fast as they, that cell needs to produce. So the question is, how do you automate those type of pieces of equipment? And the article has some very interesting uh, takeaways on getting to um, improving that process. Obviously, they make the case of why would you go, want to automate, um, and they talk about not automated machines cut approximately twenty percent into a full day. Uh, and you know, if you look at the entire year, that's about seventeen hundred hours or eighty seven hundred total available annual production hours being used. So, if you want to try and improve there, automation is one key element. And the article talks about two different paths. Uh, software automation and uh, of course hardware automation right so the examples we've been talking about are you know physically connected to the part um, and the, if you include AI you're also including some of the software automation where you allow the decision making to be done on the fly as opposed to programming everything up front uh, and it's a they give a pretty good guide of how you can optimize workflow uh, and material uh, using software and then determining uh, spindle time uh, using <laughs> schedule builders um, and optimizing raw material tools and, you know, uh, being able to keep the machine up and running as fast as possible, as, as much as possible uh, with digital automation. And of course, now that the information and tools are there, keeping the uh, tool up and running as uh, fast as much as possible by physical automation and how to uh, best implement those for existing tools. So I was just a good look and everyone's looking at if I automate something, do I have to revamp my entire factory? Right. At some point, you should be replacing 50-year-old equipment. But if you've already, I mean, it's basically free Dude, if money. It's fifty-year-old equipment. <laughs> you're crushing it. Yeah, yeah. So the key is, you know, how do you uh, uh, grow that business, right? How do you continue 
harvesting more value from that uh, aging equipment, which you can. You just Absolutely. want to run more. So it was a good guide, and that's a pretty good read from uh, Cutting Tool Engineering. I really like Cutting Tool Engineering because you know, I don't want to call this a remedial article, but sure. I like every now and then they come out with like a simple article right. that gets you up to speed into a high level, like current state relatively quickly mm-hmm. with minimal amount of text and in an easy explanation, like, you know, this is a bad example. I, I don't have an example offhand, but like I, I've posted articles from them that was like, what are cutting tools or, <laughs> or what is CNC You know, something like that. Sure. But like they really are fascinating reads. Yeah. And this one, when it came across my desk yesterday, I loved it because, you know, I've only been in this industry for like six plus years now. Sure. But if I had a nickel for every time I was at a conference and, you know, somebody asked either a speaker or during like a networking session, how do I get started with Industry 4.0? <laughs> Especially that comes up a lot in like, you know, the uh, MT Connect working group sure. or not working group, but like that whenever MT Connect is discussed right. at a conference, you know, how do I get started with Industry 4.0? Mm-hmm. If I had a nickel for every time somebody <laughs> asked that, That's a which lot of this article effectively yep. answers right i'd be retired by now we talked yeah <laughs> we had a tangent while we we're prepping to talk about retirement yes all right steve besides finding us in a retirement home in a couple of years where else can they find more info about us amtonline.org slash resources we've got a lot more content there now yeah you know, we've got the mt magazine yep um other things they can subscribe to but especially the podcast and uh the weekly tech report awesome steve Thanks, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye.